In 2019, an anonymous Instagram account was created under the name Preachers and Sneakers. Some of you may have heard of it. If not, it featured pictures of celebrity pastors oftentimes on stage um, at their churches preaching or speaking. But what this account was designed to highlight was the surprising price tag of the shoes that these pastors were wearing, which was sometimes into the thousands of dollars, hence the name Preachers and Sneakers. Now, not surprisingly, this account generated a fair amount of attention and sparked a lot of debate over how appropriate it is for ministers of the gospel to be spending so much money on designer footwear as well as clothing. Now, eventually, the creator of this account identified himself. It's a guy by the name of Ben Kirby, a self-identified Christian and sneakerhead. And although he initially started this account as a joke, it turned into something much more significant as both he and those following the account really wrestled with the implications of what he was documenting on this Instagram page. He eventually wrote a book about it uh, that came out a couple years ago in 2021 called Preachers and Sneakers, Authenticity in an Age of For-Profit Faith and Wannabe Celebrities. Now, I've not read the book, um, but my understanding is that it wrestles with some of the ethical and religious questions that are created by the rise of celebrity pastors here in America. Questions like, should pastors grow wealthy off of their churches? Is it okay for a minister of the gospel to purchase and wear sneakers that cost many hundreds, even thousands of dollars, if it makes them appear more aspirational and potentially makes their message more attractive to those who are hearing it? And of course, do these displays of wealth risk distorting the message that these pastors are supposed to be representing? It's very hard for me to see how they don't. And these questions are more pressing now than ever, given the, given the wealth of our nation and the growth of the megachurch movement here in America. Uh, but they're actually not new questions. See, there have always been public figures, both in the church and outside, who are far more interested in accumulating wealth and fame than in truly helping and serving those that they are speaking to. Today, you can find them all over the TV and the internet, of course. A couple of generations ago, they were all over the radio. And before these modern forms of communication existed, they were people who traveled from city to city, staying just long enough to attract a crowd, convince them to give them their money, and then inevitably moving on without ever having really helped those people that they had attracted through their message, whatever that message may have been about. Now, we're currently in the midst of a series from the, uh, the book of First Thessalonians. This book is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul 
a uh, early church leader, and he wrote it to a church, to a very new church that, was, that had been started in the city of Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. This was a city that was big, it was prosperous, it was very religious, but not very Christian. And Paul had several reasons for writing this letter to them, one of which was to explain why he wasn't like one of these traveling speakers who only cared about money and fame. And so this morning, we are going to hear Paul respond to accusations that were being made against him, that he was nothing more than a traveling speaker who was simply motivated by greed and fame. We're going to see him remind the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian Christians here, of what he was really like, what he was actually like when he was there with them for a time. And as we do all of this, we're going to consider what this text that we're looking at today can teach us about the kinds of leaders that our churches need here and now, whether we're talking about elders or pastors, deacons, or Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, whatever. And so if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have your own Bible or Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, grab one of those red Bibles in front of you, and we're going to be on page 1835 in the red Bible. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, in order to really appreciate the the text that we're going to look at today, we need to remember what it is that happened when Paul and Silas and Timothy first visited the city of Thessalonica. Uh, We've talked about this over the last few weeks, but just as a reminder, as was typical of Paul's practice, he had started by sharing the gospel in the Jewish synagogue there in the city. And in there, and when in the synagogue there, he was making the case from their scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, that Jesus is in fact both the long-promised Messiah and the Son of God who had come in human flesh. Well, after only a few weeks of teaching this, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were expelled from the synagogue because of this teaching although not before a few of the Jews and many of the Greeks who were there responded to the gospel. And this is how the Thessalonian church was started. Well, at some point, probably pretty shortly after this, those who had rejected Paul's message there in the synagogue formed a mob, incited a riot, and forced Paul and Silas to flee from the city. But even now, with Paul and Silas out of the picture, those who were behind this effort were not satisfied to simply see Paul go, to see him gone. It seems that they also, at the same time, launched a campaign to try and discredit him in the eyes of those who had responded to his message. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy, who by this point are now down south in the city of Corinth, they learned what was happening back in Thessalonica. And so Paul responds to that situation with this letter. Now, as we look at what Paul writes and the portion of the letter that we're going to look at today, it seems that the false claims that were being levied against him boiled down to three things. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll consider each of these accusations and Paul's response to them. 
So starting in chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. He writes, Paul writes, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Now, we've been talking about this, about the fact that many had responded to the gospel during their time in the city. Okay, but continuing on in verse 2. We, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children, actually infants among you. So here are the three slanderous claims that seem to have been made against Paul. First, that he is afraid of opposition. Second, that the message that he had brought was full of errors and deception. And then third, that what motivates him more than anything else is simply greed and fame. So let's look at each of these in turn. The first accusation is that Paul is a coward. Now in the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts describes, Acts 17 specifically, describes how Paul and Silas ended up leaving Thessalonica under the cover of darkness, aided by those in the Thessalonian church. As I alluded to earlier, uh, um, only hours before their escape, those in the synagogue had formed a mob who tried unsuccessfully to find Paul and Silas. And so at this point, once that mob had been formed, it was clear to everyone that Paul and Silas's lives were in danger. And so they, the people in the church hurried them out of the city at this point. And I think that we can infer from Paul's words there in verse 2 that those who had incited this mob but had then failed to find him were now accusing him of being a coward for having left, which is, of course, ridiculous. Because if you know anything about Paul... Paul is typically too slow, not too quick to leave in the face of danger and opposition. And so Paul here, he responds to this claim of cowardice by reminding his readers, by reminding those in Thessalonica who were hearing this accusation against him of what had actually happened to him and his team right before they arrived in Thessalonica, what had happened to them in Philippi, which is where they'd been prior to coming to Thessalonica. Look at verse 2. Here's what, he had written. Here's what he wrote. We, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So in Philippi, um, they had also been falsely accused of causing uh, a dangerous disturbance there in the city. 
But see, in Philippi, the mob that had formed actually managed to catch them. And that mob eventually turned them over to the city officials, and Paul and Silas were then beaten and then thrown in prison without even a trial. And in the end, it's only Paul's status as a Roman citizen that eventually secures their release. And so yet, or despite this very challenging experience of injustice, opposition, and suffering, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they continue with their missionary journey, even having just experienced this, taking them then to Thessalonica, where they knew full well that things could easily go very badly once again. And so very clearly, Paul and his team, they are not cowards who are afraid of opposition. You know, I think that this is an important leader to all of us uh, in the church who are leaders, uh, that it's really important that we, that we be brave, even in the face of opposition. You know, I do think that it is very unlikely that I or likely any of you will ever face the kind of opposition and danger that was experienced by Paul and his team in Philippi or in Thessalonica. But there are going to be times where we will face opposition of a more civil, if still painful, kind. I mean, today, church leaders, they get criticized for holding to and teaching doctrines and values which are out of step with society's prevailing values, whether around marriage or sexuality, around gender or identity, around forgiveness around loving our enemies. And yet, it is so important that we be brave and remain faithful to teaching and preaching well-interpreted Scripture, even when it is opposed. And then in an even more recent phenomenon, a growing number of pastors and church leaders find themselves facing criticism from within their churches for not being sufficiently partisan. They get criticized for not supporting one political party enough, for not sufficiently denigrating the other enough. And experiencing this kind of opposition, it's demoralizing, it's painful. And to be honest, it is not what most of us signed up for. But it is part of the ministry and the work that we have been called to. And so we need leaders We need to be leaders who have the courage to remain faithful in the face of opposition, faithful to the values, methods, and priorities of Jesus, whether the criticism, whether the opposition is coming to us from outside the church or even when it's coming at us from inside the church. Second accusation made against Paul is that his message was full of errors and deception. Paul summarizes and responds to this second accusation that was leveled against him in verses 3 and 4. He writes, For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul here is being accused of having given them a message that was full of errors, that's motivated by impurity, 
and that is designed to trick or to deceive them. Now, if in fact these accusations were coming from those who were still in the synagogue, which I think is likely, then the errors that he's being accused of here almost certainly refers to Paul's claims that Jesus is Messiah and the Son of God. Now, the accusation of impurity may not have referred to anything in particular. It can just be a rather convenient, reputation-damaging accusation to make against someone, even if it's completely groundless. But on the other hand, we do know from outside of the Bible that there is historical evidence that sometimes early Christians were wrongly accused of sexual impurity because they would sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as a love feast. And because they would oftentimes refer to each other, even to their spouses, as brothers and sisters. And so they would be wrongly accused of being sexually immoral. And then the final charge of trickery here assumes that Paul's motive was to deceive his hearers with a message that was simply designed to get them to follow and to financially support him. Well, Paul responds to this second accusation made against him by reminding those in the church that he's writing this letter to that that he'd actually been chosen by God to bring them this message. And that the message itself, which he calls God's gospel, is a message that originated from God and not from him to begin with. And so in Paul's case, both the message and the messenger had been tested and approved by God. See, Paul spent his life serving people, but what Paul lived for was to serve God. Men and women were the beneficiaries of his ministry, but Paul's motivation in doing all of it was fundamentally to serve God. And that's exactly the kind of leaders that the church continues to need today. Men and women who are committed to serving others, but who are living to serve God. Part of the struggle is that many of us who are involved in in ministry in the church, we really want to please those that we are ministering to. We want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. The problem, though, is that this is a desire and a temptation that can lead us into unhealthy and ungodly compromise, especially if we forget that first and foremost, it is God that we live to serve. The third accusation that is made against Paul here is that Paul is motivated by greed and fame. Paul summarizes this accusation in his response in verses 5 to 7. He writes, You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or from anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children. I would tell you the better uh, translation of the term there is actually infants. We were like infants among you. 
So those who wanted to discredit Paul were accusing him of using flattery in order to gain financial reward and praise from those in the church. As a bit of an aside, the fact that this is an accusation that's even made against Paul would seem to tell us something significant about this church. See, if everybody in the church was poor to begin with, this accusation would never go anywhere. And so the fact that Paul is being accused of having been motivated by greed would seem to imply that at least some of the people there in the Thessalonian church had significant financial means. It wasn't just the poor, the most poor in the city who were responding to the gospel message. It was people from across the economic spectrum who were there in the church. But anyway, when this letter was written back in the first century, it was very common for itinerant philosophers and teachers to travel from place to place as a way to generate uh, both fame, both recognition, a name for themselves, as well as a way to generate income, a way to generate wealth. They would show up in a particular city. They would impress the crowds with their eloquent words. They would extract some sort of payment or support from those who had heard them, and then they would move on. Now, it's entirely possible that for at least some of these itinerant philosophers and teachers that that their motive was, in fact, good and that their teaching was genuinely intended to benefit those that they taught. But in many cases, it became clear that the overriding motive was simply personal gain, both financial and reputational. Through eloquent flattery and persuasion, they secured financial support and created a name for themselves. And so what Paul is doing here is arguing that even though people were very familiar with this kind of person, Paul is saying, I, we... Myself and Paul and Silas and Timothy, we are not of this ilk. He reminds the people in Thessalonica that that he never used flattery on them, nor did he seek financial support from them, even though he legitimately could have as an apostle. Instead, he and his team, they were like young children. They were like infants among them. In other words, instead of throwing around their weight as apostles, when they were there, they were humble and not demanding of the people they were ministering to. And so this reminds us that the kind of leaders the church needs, the kind of leaders that we need to be in the church and in society, is leaders who are humble and not demanding. See, God's design and purpose for leadership is not to elevate people so that they can throw their weight around and indulge themselves in the perks of power and fame. God's designed purpose for leadership, both inside, certainly inside the church, but also outside of the church, is one of service. The point of leadership is to serve. A leader is supposed to seek and prioritize the good and flourishing of those that they are leading. Because see, in the kingdom of God, leaders are not to be served, but are to serve. Well, Paul here, having introduced the metaphor of family there in verse 7 with the 
uh, talk of infants, he now leans into this metaphor even more. And having spent the first half of this text that we're looking at describing what he wasn't like when he was there among the Thessalonians, he uses the second portion of this text that we're looking at to describe to them, to remind them what he was like when he was with them. Specifically, he reminds them that he was like, or they were like a nursing mother and a nurturing father. Uh, Paul here uses the metaphor of a nursing mother to describe the kind of love that he and Silas and Timothy showed them during their time together. Look at, uh, picking up about halfway through verse 7. He writes, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. And so Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the kind of tender care that he and Silas and Timothy showed them. They shared with them not just the gospel message, but, but their lives as well. What Paul is describing here is something that's deeply relational. See, they didn't treat the Thessalonians instrumentally as people who just needed to be converted and discipled. Instead, they engaged with the Thessalonians as people to be loved as people to be truly invested in and cared for. And just as the relationship between a mother and an infant is asymmetrical in terms of giving and receiving, meaning one side primarily gives, the other side primarily receives, so it was when Paul and Silas and Timothy were there with them. Paul and his team, they gave and loved and supported without expecting all of this to be equally reciprocated back to them. In fact, we know that while they were there, that Paul and his team worked hard in the marketplace so that they could cover all their own expenses. They did not want to burden them or this new church with the pressure of financially supporting them. See, like a mother who is caring for her children, they were happy to give far more than they were receiving. Because sometimes that is what love looks like. Well, continuing with this familial metaphor, Paul also describes he and his team as being like a father to the Thessalonian Christians. Look at verse 11. He says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now notice that as Paul uses this father metaphor, he's emphasizing fatherly devotion, not fatherly authority. It's not that fathers and Paul's and Paul don't have God-designed authority in these contexts. They certainly do. But it's this nurturing edifying role that fathers have that Paul is pointing to here. See, when Paul and Silas and Timothy were in Thessalonica to get this church started there, they didn't act like, as taskmasters. 
Instead, they encouraged, they comforted, they urged and edified, just like a good father who wants more than anything to see their children grow and thrive in wisdom and knowledge and maturity. As some of you may know, there's been a lot of discussion in the modern church about styles of leadership and which is, in fact, the best one for our time and our situation. Sometimes pastors are now described basically as CEOs of their church. And in recent years, there have been too many stories about pastors who've been overly authoritarian, both in the ways that they led their staff as well as in the ways in which they engaged with their congregations. And some of these situations have become downright abusive, both emotionally and spiritually, creating yet another kind of scandal that continues to erode at the reputation and moral authority of the church here in America. And that's why it's so important that we who are in leadership, whether we're elders or pastors or deacons or whatever, we need to make sure that we are thinking about the people that we are leading relationally rather than just hierarchically. We need to look here at Paul's example. He could have very easily and even appropriately played the apostle card at any point when he was there in Thessalonica. Yet instead... He embraced the humility of an infant, the loving heart of a mother, and the nurturing disposition of a father. And this is the kind of leader that I and you need to strive to be. It's the kind of leadership that our churches need most. And it's the kind of leadership that will help restore the reputation and moral authority of the church here in America. Now, depending on your own personal experience with the church, whatever that might look like, Paul's words and attitudes here might, might actually be surprising to you. It might even seem kind of radical compared to what you've seen and experienced. And I hope it's pretty clear to you that, that Paul is not the kind of guy who's ever going to get featured on preachers and sandals. He's a very different kind of leader than those that we are likely to see on Instagram. But as revolutionary as Paul's attitude might seem to some of you here this morning, it is so important that, that what we recognize more than anything is that in all of this, he is simply following the example of Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to us not just like, a, like an infant, but as an infant. Eternal Son of God, he, he traded the infinite glory of the throne room of heaven for the grinding humility and poverty of a manger. And he took on human flesh, veiling his glory 
so that he could be born among us as one of us. And though he was, is the prince of heaven, his arrival went largely unnoticed, except by his parents and a few shepherds and some foreigners from the east. He never threw his weight around or demanded special treatment. He grew up in obscurity in a little backwater town in Galilee. And when his public ministry did begin, he didn't burst onto the scene in fancy clothes or sandals like a conquering king or a military general. He didn't demand honor or recognition. He didn't use flattery to gain wealth or fame. Instead, like a nursing mother cares for her children, he cared for us. And because he loves us so much, he was delighted to share with us not only the gospel, but his life as well. And he deals with us, with each of us, as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging us to live lives worthy of God and of the kingdom that he has come to announce. The kingdom that his death and resurrection inaugurated, the kingdom that will come in its fullness when Jesus returns to finally and forever fix all that's broken in this world. What the church needs today is not celebrity, pa celebrity pastors who can impress with their eloquent words and fabulous footwear, which I'm very thankful for. <laughs> what the church needs today is what the church has always needed. Elders and pastors and leaders and teachers who have the humility of an infant, the loving heart of a nursing mother, the nurturing disposition of a father. It needs leaders who look to Jesus for their message and for their example to follow. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself. We know that you made us to represent you and to rule this world with you, and yet we also know that we have not remained loyal to you. Thank you for not giving up on us and instead sending your son to be our true rescuer king. And Jesus, thank you for trading the glory of heaven for the humility of a manger, for taking on human flesh so that you could be born among us as one of us, for entering into the brokenness of our world to show us how to truly live and then for dying for all the times and ways in which we don't. Holy Spirit, continue your good work in us, we ask. Form us into the kind of pastors and leaders and elders and teachers and believers that the church and our world needs today. Expose and confront the brokenness in our lives so that we will repent and allow you to change us. Continue to make us more like Jesus so that we may become more and more your agents of grace and gospel in this beautiful but broken world in which we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.